Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am a man of unclean lips. Would you cause within me the words and meditations of my heart to be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This evening, we're going to be peering into the mists of the greatest mystery of the universe. It is a mystery that is at once too bright for our feeble senses and also too dense and cloudy for even our keenest perception. Tonight, we celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation, the declaration that was made to Mary that God's own Son, the promised Davidic king who would inherit the entire world, was going to be knit together in her womb. Before we move into this mystery, I just want to say a disclaimer. I grew up going to church every Sunday. I attended a Christian school most of my life. I grew up in a home that placed heavy emphasis on scripture and personal faith. And I cannot recall, I do have a bad memory, but I cannot recall a single time that someone taught me something specifically about Mary. That is not a complaint. Maybe it's a complaint. It's not mostly a complaint. It's just a recognition that if you came to Christ in the context of the evangelical church, there's a good chance that when anyone does start talking about Mary, I know, I've got the same little hairs on the back of my neck and they sort of start to stand up. You start to wonder what's going on. After all, if the contribution of evangelicalism to the broader Christian world is anything, it's that the focus of all Christian teaching, piety, and worship should be Christ himself, to which I say a hearty amen and amen. In fact, it is because of Christ and the centrality of Christ to everything that we do that I believe we need to recapture an understanding of the mystery and beauty that Mary embodies. A man far wiser than me once said, Mary finds no place in many theologies because they've reduced the faith to an abstraction, and an abstraction doesn't need a mother. I hope it goes without saying that we do not worship an abstraction. Our hope in the resurrection of our bodies and the renewal of the entire universe cannot be upheld by an abstraction. It cannot be put together by an idea. It is held by the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. And so as we consider Christ's humanity and the mystery of his incarnation together, I'd like us to consider these three things. Mary, as hidden as a fetus. Mary, wider than the heavens. And Mary, fiat in the midst of nihilists. In Luke's gospel, the birth of John the Baptist has just been announced to his father, Zechariah, before our passage this evening. And Zechariah was working in the temple, and, and he was in there actually lighting incense for the prayers of God's people. It was a big moment for him in his career. And he's in there for so long, dealing with Gabriel, that people start to wonder what's going on. And so the, the declaration that Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, are going to be with child quickly becomes a public thing. Zechariah's disbelief results in his muteness 
until John's birth. So even when he comes out and the people are asking him what happened, he can't speak. And so all of Jerusalem is abuzz with what this angelic appearance might have meant for Zechariah and Elizabeth. But when Gabriel, the messenger of God, goes to Mary, he doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. In our context, he doesn't go to the Washington, D.C. of the world. He doesn't even go to the Seattle or Portland. I'm talking he goes past Gresham, out into the middle of nowhere, to a rural backwater, to the home of a woman pledged to be married. And in that culture, unmarried women would have had very little contact with men they weren't related to because their purity was of such importance. And so Mary was in many ways hidden. She was hidden away. In Luke's description of the scene, there doesn't seem to be anyone else around. It's just Mary and her angelic visitor. As we'll see, this message is perhaps the greatest announcement to have ever been declared to human hearing, and yet there is only one person who hears it, a young woman. In her own culture, she's a nobody. Not only that, but after this encounter concludes, we're told the angel left her. Mary's hiddenness bookends this scene. But Mary isn't just hidden socially. Mary evidences here an interior life that is rarely encountered. When the angel told Zechariah that his barren wife would conceive a child, Zechariah responds with disbelief. Seriously? My wife and I are super old. Now, I can kind of understand where he's coming from, but also, dude, this is the story of the Old Testament. God coming to old people who haven't had kids and saying, guess what? You're going to have a kid. Zechariah should have seen what was going on here, and yet he responds in disbelief. And so Gabriel causes him to go mute. But when Gabriel appears to Mary, he greets her in a very strange and unique way. It's so startling is the way that he talks to her that we're told that Mary was troubled. This greeting is not used any other time in the Bible. It's only used once, actually, in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And the early translation of what Gabriel says to Mary is, guess, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. This greeting was so bizarre that Mary was troubled, but she wasn't disbelieving. Rather, she considered within herself, we're told, what this greeting could mean. She pondered. She dialogued internally. But don't skip past this. She's pondering within her what? The word of God to her. Mary is a woman who ponders the word of God. She has a hiddenness within herself. Mary will continue in hiddenness through most of her life. Misunderstood and almost done away with by her betrothed for this mysterious pregnancy, no doubt looked down upon by neighbors and friends. And yet she hides within her the worship and words that are given to her infant son, in the words and worship of the Magi and the shepherds. Later, when Jesus stays behind at the temple and Mary and Joseph can't find their son for three days, we're told that Mary treasures up all of these things in her heart. She's continuing to ponder internally in a hidden way the word of God. 
In St. John's Gospel, we're told that Mary stood at the foot of the cross watching her son be crucified, standing next to the beloved disciple. And in John's Gospel, Jesus' dying words were to Mary, woman, behold your son. And to the beloved one, the disciple, he says, behold your mother. As the church fathers reflected on this statement from Jesus, The very last things he says in John's gospel before saying, I thirst, and it is finished as he died. And as they reflected on this hiddenness, this interiority of Mary, it became clear to them that Mary, the mother of God, is also in some strange mystical way the mother of the church or even a type of the church. She images and embodies the church where Christ is born anew in each believer through faith and baptism. So when Jesus hands over Mary to his disciple as his mother and the disciple as her son, he is saying, all who follow me are going to be sons of my own mother. They're brothers with me, sons also even more incredibly of the Father. To circle back to the beginning, notice again it is only to Mary that this declaration is made. And as every mother here knows, it is only to her that in a true and intimate way, the hidden God is being knit together in her womb. She has a knowledge of Jesus that no other person on this planet has ever had. Not only that, but she has it for days and weeks to herself. Is anyone thinking about Christmas right now? Of course not. It's nine months away. But do you see the mystery of God's incarnation? For nine months, he was known only to Mary, communed only with her, and was being brought forth only within her, day after day, week after week, month after month. Mary was as hidden as the fetus inside her. She understood the hiddenness of God in a way that the rest of us simply can't. But Mary is also wider than the heavens. The epicenter of the mystery of the incarnation is found in this short phrase, that God, though greater than the entire universe, is confined to Mary's womb. The humility and mystery here are beyond words. Gabriel's declaration to Mary is that she will give birth to a son to be called Yeshua, Deliverer. And he will be called Son of the Most High, and he repeats it again. He will be called Son of God. And Gabriel tells her that this Son will be given by God himself, the throne of David, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the messianic promise. Who had David's throne at the time that Mary heard this? Herod, a murderous Roman puppet. Gabriel is announcing a reversal that goes beyond Palestine. It's what Mary herself busts out in song in the Magnificat when she sings, He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. The world's true king has been announced, and the mighty are about to get cast down from their thrones. Notice that Mary, given the strength of her interior life, has only one question. Practicalities. How exactly does this work? Because I'm a virgin. Gabriel's answer is as staggering as anything we've heard him say so far. When he tells her that the Holy Spirit will come upon her 
and that the, the cloud of the Lord will overshadow her, what he is saying is that the Shekinah glory of God himself is going to come around her. And this is where we have to unmask the metaphors that we use so readily, I think, to understand what he's really getting at. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God creates a temple-like garden, a place where his presence will come and dwell with his people, where he will be served by the priests of his creation, his image bearers. They were to be priests in the garden, reflecting the goodness of God out into the world and reflecting the goodness of the world back up to God. Adam and Eve, of course, say no to God and follow their own path, as has every generation since them. But every once in a while, there's a person that will say yes. And in the family of Abraham, God continues his mission. Centuries after he called Abraham and his people, his descendants had been put into slavery in Egypt, God brings Moses to bring the people up out of slavery to worship the Lord. And what do they do? They build a tabernacle that is a microcosm of the universe. It's a picture of that first garden. And they appoint priests to come and serve God in the place where he will dwell among his people. Eventually, they come to the land of promise, and over time, Solomon, David's first son, builds a temple, again, as a microcosm of the world, as a place where God might make his home. Every time that God comes to dwell in these tents, the cloud of his presence descends and overshadows them. When you're told that the Most High is going to overshadow you, it means that the power radiance of his glory is going to come upon you. And now in this time, God has chosen what? To make his home in Mary, to dwell in her, not simply as a manifestation of his power, but to so knit himself to her that she actually carries him with her until he's born. And then what? He carries her with him right? Don't hold back here. St. John says in his epistles, many deceivers who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh have gone out into the world. These are the Antichrist, he says. And again, he says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. When I say I worship Jesus as God and Lord, I mean I worship God who has taken on flesh. But not just as every man. He has taken on the flesh of Mary. He has her smile. He has her eyes. He laughs like she does. The lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, the word through whom all things were created, the God of the universe, has a mother. Why? Why would he do that? Because that which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. If you or I have a hope of seeing the light of resurrection rather than the darkness of corruption, it is because Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to redeem you in your body. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, is that Jesus brought about the sacrifice that forgives sins in his body so that we can have life in our bodies. 
And this is all because the Spirit of God, the bright cloud of Shekinah glory, overshadowed Mary, and he who is wider than the heavens did not shun the virgin's womb. It's incredible. Mary, as God's dwelling place, in a sense, preconceives the church, which is now what? God's dwelling place. Peter tells us in his letters, you are the temple of God. You're being built up into his dwelling and his bride. And it is here that Mary is held up to us as an example, not just of true femininity, but of true humanity. Because in response to all of this incredible news, Mary does what Eve failed to do and what the world collectively has failed to do. She says to God's proposition, fiat, let it be done. She says yes, where we have all said no. The beauty of her obedience is its simplicity. From the beginning, we have all been created to respond to God's initiative. Every single one of us has been created to respond to his presence with us seeking initiative. We have been created to respond with the same yes that Mary responds with. Do you see that from the beginning, the word of God has gone out, and through countless generations, mankind has held up his fist with a resounding no. Nihilism, right? We don't know what it is, but we don't want it. And yet here, the word of God comes, seeking a home in Mary, and she says yes. And what happens? This is where our metaphors get all crossed together. The word of God bears fruit in her. The very thing that all of us are called to do, which is to hear the word of God and allow it to bear fruit in us, happens to her quite literally. The word of God who was with God and was God, the same was in the beginning with God, this same one has tabernacled among us. How did he do that? He did that in the womb of Mary. And this is what the church has been called to ever since. To hear the voice of Jesus, to hear the word and respond in the same way. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done unto me according to your word. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.